When I was in college, a million years ago, there was a guy that I knew who was trying to get himself noticed in advance of the NFL draft. This was at Ithaca College, which had a terrific track record of athletic success at the NCAA Division III level. The Bombers baseball team won the national championship my senior year. The football team lost in the Amos Alonzo Stag Bowl when I was a freshman and then won the D3 championship the season after I graduated. It was a great small school sports program. Still is. But a launch pad to professional sports, it was not. By the time I left IC, the most famous ex-bomber we could claim was Bob Morella, better known by his pro-wrestling sobriquet, Gorilla Monsoon. Morella, a former All-American wrestler, was inducted into the Ithaca College Sports Hall of Fame in 1973, and Gorilla went into the WWF Hall of Fame in 1994. Now at least there's an Ithaca College product on a Major League Baseball roster, Arizona Diamondbacks outfielder Tim LaCastro. Still, we've had more alumni go on to captain the love boat than to play in the National Football League. So what this guy I knew was trying to do back in the 80s was pretty unprecedented, even for a big, talented D3 All-American like him. In the previous year's NFL draft, a handful of small college prospects had been selected, and a couple of them wound up becoming all-pro players. Christian Okoya, the Nigerian nightmare out of Azusa Pacific, an NAIA school in California. Greg Lloyd from Fort Valley State, a Division II program in Georgia. Back then, the NFL draft went 12 rounds deep. 335 players were selected in 1987, not one from a Division III program. This guy tried everything he could do to create an opportunity. Still, 333 names were called in the 1988 draft, and his name was not one of them. I hear he got looks from the Redskins and the Jets, but I don't think he ever played in the NFL. Coaches and scouts and personnel people like to say to players that the size of their school doesn't matter, that if you're talented enough, they'll find you. And while the process for evaluating NFL draft prospects has become much more sophisticated and comprehensive over the years, one reality remains unchanged three decades later. The path from small college football to the NFL hasn't gotten any easier. Welcome to the Out of Left Field Podcast, Season 1, Episode 2. Tonight, the 85th NFL Draft gets underway. The Bengals have been on the clock with the first pick since the Sunday before Christmas, and they'll kick off a process that will spread out over three nights in unprecedented times. The coronavirus forced the cancellation of the live draft ceremonies that were to be held in Las Vegas, and it was going to be huge. There was to be a stage built in the fountains of the Bellagio Hotel, and players would be ferried across the water on a boat so they could come shake hands with Commissioner Roger Goodell. Now there will be no boat, no fountains, certainly no shaking hands. The commissioner will announce picks from his basement, while every NFL general manager, coach, and scout will be working furiously from their own home offices in front of makeshift draft boards with dogs barking in the background. One thing we've all learned doing business over Zoom these days, dogs are going to bark. One other thing we know, 255 players will be selected in the 2020 draft, all remotely. When it's done, dozens more will scramble to find opportunities to try out for teams as undrafted free agents. The future will come into focus for a bunch of football players who have worked their entire young lives for the chance to live out their NFL dreams. For others, questions will remain. Will I play football again? Will someone give me a shot? Does anyone even know that I'm out here? Just to keep you updated, Will Gladney currently 74 catches on the season. That's tied for the IC single-season record. Shotgun snap to Joe Germanario, rolling out to his right. Lots of room to work with. There's the catch to Will Gladney. Gladney at the 25-yard line, taken down. That's a first down. And that's another Gladney Ithaca record for Will Gladney, breaking Joe Palumbo's single-season receptions record, his 75th grab of Double the year. With the tackle. 
Phil Gladney is an unbelievably talented and football player. Well, that's just about the only record he didn't have. He had receiving yards. Numbers are impressive. 258 career receptions, 3,574 receiving yards, 38 touchdown catches. But statistics are not important to NFL decision makers when it comes to scouting college football players and determining who has a chance to play at the next level. And they certainly do not tell Will Gladney's story. But we'll get to that. Still, a scouting report of any would-be pro prospect has to start somewhere. So we begin where any NFL evaluator would, with Gladney's college career. In the course of his four seasons on South Hill, he became the most productive receiver ever to play at Ithaca College. Full disclosure, my alma mater, as we just discussed. But any talk of statistics or honors ends here, especially for a small school prospect like Gladney. If numbers mattered, the NFL would have opened its arms for a guy like Nate Kamick, former running back at Division Three Mount Union, the NCAA's all-time all-divisions rushing leader, and the only college football player ever to rush for more than 8,000 yards in his career. Or there would have been a job for Tyler Emmert, the former Carroll College quarterback, who threw for more than 12,700 yards and won four straight NAIA national championships after winning back-to-back Montana State high school titles. This guy went 80-3 as a starting quarterback, won more rings than he has fingers on his throwing hand, and the closest he came to a shot at the pros was a tryout with the BC Lions of the Canadian Football League. No, to catch an eye from the NFL, you need a lot more than eye-popping numbers. And I still remember the first time I came to the guy. That's Reese Petty, Gladney's wide receivers coach for three college seasons. He came to Ithaca from Division I. He coached at Buffalo, was a grad assistant at Iowa State, and he actually played wide receiver at the University of Kansas. It wasn't even an interview. I was just interested in the job, and Coach Schwanstrom invited me to come watch a spring practice. And Will was not participating that day. Uh, he had been sick, and I just remember seeing him in person and, and shaking his hand and beating him and being like, oh, wow. You know, I didn't know coming into it, what Division Three players look like because I'd never been in the Division Three world. And I was like, this guy looks like a Division One wide receiver physically. And, you know, a couple months, I shouldn't say a couple months, a couple weeks, I'd say two weeks later, uh, I was there and he was practicing and it was towards the end of spring ball. And I could see his physical ability. I could see the tools he had. Now that's where numbers start to matter to the NFL. Measurables. Gladney has what easily could be considered an NFL body for a wide receiver. He's listed at six foot two, 215 pounds, or about the same height and weight as the Chargers' Keenan Allen. NFL scouts like to find comparables for every prospect. Makes them easier to project into a pro system. But size also earns little more than a first look from the NFL. For years, front offices have resisted falling for workout warriors, guys who, as the old saying goes, look like Tarzan but play like Jane. All they care about is can the guy play? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is um, I think it'll be hard-pressed to find anyone with better hands, just period, timing, balance, um, to go up and get the ball. Um, you know, that's uh, you know that's a rare attribute to find. Dan Swanstrom became the head coach at Ithaca after Gladney's freshman season. I think the biggest thing for him that could be a big differentiator for him is in uh, – is how uh, I think his willingness to use his size and physicality on the perimeter and being 
able to do that in the run game um, and his willingness to do that, I think could be something that could be what, what NFL teams are, are looking for from him. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, we ask a lot of intricate details in our blocking scheme and, uh, um, you know, just knowing some of the NFL coaches that I know, I think, you know, that could be something that, you know, he could definitely, um, you know, that they'll see as an asset. Production, check. Size, check. Ability, check. Any NFL scout who got this far into an evaluation of a prospect would now have to ask himself, why would a kid with this pedigree wind up playing at a Division Three program? Why didn't he go D1? And that is where Will Gladney's story really begins. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm still working on telling the story because there's a lot, so uh, just bear with me. That's Will Gladney. I spoke with him about two weeks before the NFL draft. Growing up in and out of group homes ever since I was four, you know, living in seven different group homes, four different foster homes, and just, you know, bouncing. You never knew where you were going to be at. You never knew if you were going to be in one school the one day and then go to a whole different school and have to make new friends that day or go on a new sports team that day. So, you know, just that that life at such a young age just taught me to, you know, just be humble, um, taking everything that you can, you know, build with people. Everyone's not going to be your friends. And just if you want it, you just you got to go get it because no one's going to give it to you. And sometimes life isn't fair. But guess what? If you sit there and just talk about the downs, then you're not going to get anywhere in life. And that is exactly the direction Gladney was headed. So my ninth grade year at Binghamton High School, you know, I started playing football and I had potential. I was right on varsity my freshman year just playing football. But, you know, going through those group homes and foster homes at such a younger age, you don't really get a hold of how to do school. So school is a huge thing for me. So I didn't go to school my freshman year at Binghamton. I would just play football. And my coaches would be like, what am I going to say, Will, if a coach calls me and they ask about you? Because you don't go to school. And I, I just, you know, I had the mindset like, I, I, I don't really care. I don't care. Gladney was burning through opportunities, and the system was just about done with him. Sure enough, he was sent to live in a group home in the southern-tier town of Owego, just west of Binghamton, bordered on the south by the Susquehanna River. There, maybe for the first time in his life, Gladney caught a break. He came in, and uh, it was made pretty clear that this was his last opportunity to stay at that level of care before getting moving. You know, he would run, he would take off, go to his mom's or wherever. He, he was floating all around, skipping school, and they they got tired of watching that and um, sent him out here. Here is the group home where Mark Brainerd worked. Well, our first encounter actually was really, it was pretty bad. Uh, we're not allowed to have cell phones there. And he's checking me in, checking all my clothes in and stuff, doing inventory. And I asked him, like, am I allowed to have my cell phone? And he's like, no. I was like, okay. And he's like, that well, that means you have one. And so he ended up taking that. And our first encounter was awful. But then later on in the night, when he knew I was upset about that. He came up in the room and he's like, is there anything else you like to do? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, what, what is that? And I was like, I play sports. And technically, got people in the group home are not supposed to do anything outside the group home for the first three months they're there, just so that they can get to learn the, the kid. And he's like, well... Tonight, I got you an AAU tryout for the Wego basketball team here. Will Gladney had caught an eye. All his life, 
He'd been waiting for someone to give him a chance, a shot at stability, at having a home and a family. Could it be that here, perhaps with his last chance to escape the New York State foster care system, which at any time could have as many as 25,000 children under its responsibility, Gladney's life had finally taken a turn towards something positive? So we ended up on an AAU team. He clicked with the coach. Uh, I left the group home. He spent eight months with that coach living there. Um, And he was a friend of mine, so I was able to still keep in contact with Will. We would lift weights, spend time together. So over that eight months that he was with uh, the, his, his foster family there, I was still able to build with him. Uh, things fell through. He gets tossed back into a group home. And then, you know, uh, they called me and asked if I was willing to take him. And it was my uh, my wife, actually, who made that decision. But then eventually I got a call and he's like, um, Jenny wants you to come live with us. Is that is that fine with you? And I was... I was like, yes, finally. But at the same time, I was timid because I would go to a place before and then they would just give up on me or I would have to leave. So I was timid at first, but there was just this bond that I had with them. He lived here for a couple years, finishing up high school. And uh, toward the end of that, he asked if we would adopt him. So uh, that (laughs) that made my eyeballs sweat a little bit when he did that. Um, he, uh, you know, we ended up adopting him after he was 18. So it was really just, you know, what, this was not something that the system was pushing on us or he felt pressured to do. This was a legitimate decision. We all cared about each other and were very tight and became a a strong family unit. And and that was the decision that we made together. I could finally realize that there was actually people out there that were good people and cared for me. Um, and not just in a athletic you know, platform just in general as a person, as a, as a human. Um, once I found that out, I, I just, I, I built this love for those people. And I just knew in the back of my head that I have to pay it forward. And they'll tell you, you know, not playing football, just being you is enough. But in the back of my head, I always knew I love football. And these people here helped me, you know, get to playing football at a, at a college level. And now at the next level, um, and I just I just owe them that, and I, I'm not going to stop until I achieve that. Gladney's story gets even better. In the last regular season game of his college career, Ithaca was scheduled to play its arch rival, the State University of New York at Cortland. In keeping with traditions of rivalry games at all levels of college football, the Bombers and Red Dragons play every year for the Cortica Jug. And while many small school rivalries claim to be the biggest little game in America, the 61st installment of the Cortica Jug put that debate to rest. The 2019 season finale was played neither at Butterfield Stadium in Ithaca, nor at the stadium complex in Cortland, 22 miles up Route 13 in central New York. Rather, it was played in East Rutherford, New Jersey, at MetLife Stadium, home of the New York Giants and the New York Jets. On November 16th, 45,161 fans, a Division III record, watched Ithaca earn a 32-20 win. What turned out to be the game-winning touchdown came with 9.49 to play in the third quarter when Coach Dan Swanstrom decided to go for it on fourth down. Here's how it went down on WICB Radio with Ben Carlton and Matthias Weilman on the call. 
I think you go for this if you're the Bombers. You thought right, Matias Germanario, the offense staying out there for fourth and short. Germanario out of the shotgun. Now slowly walking up under center. Under center. Fakes the snap, now walks backwards. 15 seconds on the play clock. He's got time. Because we were trying to see if they, the defense wouldn't be set, and if they weren't set, um, we were going to run QB sneak, but we really don't care where the receivers align. And uh, just as that we move as fast as possible. So we've got time. Changing the play here. Anderson flips from the left to the right. Romero takes the snap, dropping back to pass. Floats it. Far side. Will Gladney over his shoulder. Touchdown, Bombers. Touchdown. It's Will Gladney on the corner route in the far end zone. 15th touchdown of the season for Will Gladney. 25 6, Ithaca leads. So he ended up being in a position that he's never played before when he caught his touchdown pass. And we called the play, and just his overall knowledge of the offense, knew exactly what route to run. Man, a beautiful route, stem and vertical, putting his foot in the ground. And I think that play, you know, catching it in our student section with 45, that, like it's just, a, um, it's just a great metaphor for his growth. It wasn't just in front of the IC student section that made that touchdown so special. Yeah, that was, it was, that was crazy. The craziest part though was it happened to be right in front of my family. Like it could have happened anywhere else, any other end zone. It could have happened on the other side of our end zone and it happened right in front of them. And I think that was the most special part for me. Right in front of us, right in front of us. Um, And I, you know, I, I had, I got rid of 30 tickets for that game. So that whole section. You know, that was all family and friends that have been part of his life for a long time. So I don't think it could have happened any better. If you were an NFL coach or GM, this is exactly the kind of story you would want to hear directly from a prospect. All of it. From the group homes to the last chances. From having Brainerd confiscate his cell phone to the adoption. Going to college and making that play in that environment, in that game, in front of his classmates and his friends and his family. Statistics do not count in the NFL draft process. Character does. Unfortunately, Gladney has not had the chance to tell that story to anyone from the NFL. The road to professional football from Division Three has always been tough. But this year, with the country shut down by a deadly virus, that road became immeasurably harder. In our house, we can identify the different seasons by smell. Winter smells like hockey equipment. Fall smells like middle school boy. Spring smells like wet dog. Because here in the Northeast, it rains. A lot. Each of the last three years, March lasted like 11 weeks. And because we have a dog who likes to roll around on the front lawn when it's wet. Especially right after a visit to the groomer. Can someone explain that to me? Anyway, we've not found anything that really gets the hockey smell out of the car, but we have found the answer to the wet dog smell. The Soggy Doggy Super Chamois, which is as effective a canine cleaning product as it is fun to say. It's basically a towel made out of noodley fibers, also fun to say, which trap dirt and debris before your dog can slop them all over your house. Except it's five times more absorbent than regular towels, and the convenient easy-on Hand pockets make drying a wiggly wet dog possible, which is a necessity in these crazy times. Nobody wants to shelter in place in a place that smells like wet dog. Our Golden actually loves the massage from those noodly fibers, so she never resists me drying her paws or rubbing her belly before letting her back into the house. Maybe that's why she rolls in the puddles in the first place. 
You can order the Soggy Doggy Super Chamois or their dog beds or doormats or the Soggy Doggy Slobber Swabber, you know, to clean the dog drool off your car windows at SoggyDoggyDoormat.com. And if you enter the code LEFTFIELD15, you'll get a 15% discount on any purchase. Since we're just getting acquainted, here's something you should probably know about me. I am an enthusiastic advocator of things that I love. I love being the guy who recommends a great restaurant to a friend or suggests a movie or a book or a new podcast that they should check out. I'll never go to bat for something unless I feel strongly in favor of it, which is why you'll never hear me promoting traffic or tomatoes or wearing long pants. So when I encourage you to check out Everripe plant-based superfood smoothies, you can trust that it's because I love them myself. Even before we were all stockpiling for an extended stay-at-home spring, we were loading up on Everripe. There are a ton of reasons I could roll through for you. They're delicious, they're incredibly easy to make, they're shelf-stable, and all five flavors are dairy-free, gluten-free, preservative-free, even shipping-free in the continental U.S. But that's not the selling point for me. Yeah, I have two teenagers who, on school days, both actual and virtual, have breakfast at the same time. And when you have teenage siblings who can agree on what they want for breakfast, you give it to them. And if it takes 90 seconds from start to finish to prepare it for them, you feel a gratitude that is as pure and natural as the freeze-dried ingredients that brought harmony to breakfast time. If you live in the Northeast or the Pacific Northwest, you can find Everripe smoothies in your local Walmart. If not... You can order them through Amazon or on their website, everripe.com, that's E-V-E-R-I-P-E.com, where you could check out their blog, which shares all kinds of great ideas for physical and mental wellness. And if you order from everripe.com, you can enter the code LEFTFIELD20, all caps, all one word, LEFTFIELD20, and get a 15% discount on your purchase. Every NFL team has scouts that attend college football games throughout the regular season, beginning to build a database that will eventually evolve into that team's draft board. It isn't until the NFL regular season is over and the college all-star game circuit is underway that NFL coaches begin to get personally involved when they get to form their own impressions firsthand. This year, there were five all-star games, four of which most fans would be familiar with. The NFLPA game played on January 18th at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. The East-West Shrine game played January 23rd in St. Petersburg, Florida. The Senior Bowl played in Mobile, Alabama on January 25th. And this year, the Hawaii-based Hula Bowl returned after a 12-year hiatus. 54 wide receivers were invited to play in those events. Will Gladney was not one of them. Instead, he earned an invitation to the College Gridiron Showcase in Fort Worth, Texas. We're looking for the, you know, diamond in the rough kind of undiscovered talent. That's Mike Riddleman, the game's player personnel director and scouting coordinator. We're kind of for like the unknowns of like for all levels of football. So, I mean, FBS, FCS, D2, D3, NAIA. I mean, we are a platform that, you know, gives kids, players opportunities to showcase their, um, their talents and, So how we're different from the other All-Star games, we're in OTA format. OTAs are organized team activities. 
Basically, they're practice drills, and that's what the NFL wants to see. Coaches flock to the Senior Bowl and spend the week of practice on the sidelines, but many of them will not stick around to see the actual game. We, we don't have an actual game. So it's, you know, like three days of, of practice and then the fourth day is a controlled scrimmage. And what, what that allows us to do, uh, it, um, you know, it allows the kids to play faster. More importantly, there's no, there's no remembering a you know a certain play. Literally for offense, we hold up a card and say, "All right, I need an X, I need a Y." You know, okay, running back, okay, read the play, go out, perform. CGS is different in that they provide a two day small school showcase, which is exactly what it sounds like. Every year, the NFL scouts and coaches in attendance vote on ten or twelve small school prospects from that event to stick around and participate in the full showcase which is for prospects at every level of college. Will Gladney didn't have to play his way into the big game. He, he had great size, 6'3", about 215, I want to say, uh, around there. He had about 1,100 yards receiving and 16 touchdowns. I mean, awesome athlete, good hands. Uh, so he was right off the bat in our, our main showcase. Someone, it turns out, had noticed. Someone whose job it is to provide Division three prospects like Will Gladney something they desperately need, exposure. All 32 teams were there, and um, so I feel like being able to be there and all 32 teams seeing me there in live action, full pads against Division One competition and just great competition all around the country, I think that will help me a lot, especially because I did pretty well there. Um, being a Division Three guy, you know, people get caught up on the Division Three, Two, One, but all it really is is, if you catch an eye or not. Yeah, he's coming from a D3 school competing against big schools, you know, guys that are probably going to get drafted in rounds three through seven. Um, I don't think he was intimidated by that. I think he came out and played. I think it took him, you know, some reps, some repetition to adjust to that type of speed. And uh, once he adjusted to that, he started running by guys, making plays. I think the takeaway from that is he belongs. He wasn't a fish out of water. I mean, he he could make plays. So, I mean, I, I think he has a future. Ideally, Gladney's immediate future after CGS would have been to attend the NFL scouting combine. Every year, every NFL team sends its GM, player personnel staff, coaching staff, scouting staff, and medical staff to Indianapolis to watch prospects perform a gauntlet of tests designed to measure their athleticism. Things like the bench press, the vertical leap, and of course, the 40-yard dash, and also to run through a series of position-specific drills. 337 college players were invited to the 2020 Combine. Only one of those was from Division Three, and it wasn't Gladney. Instead, it was Ben Barch, a massive offensive tackle from St. John's in Collegeville, Minnesota, who's looking like a day-two draft pick. Gladney's path took him instead to Grossetti Performance in western Pennsylvania, where he spent eight weeks preparing for his scheduled pro day, which is basically an individual workout modeled after the combine regimen. That's when the world began to change. He went to the CGS in Fort Worth, and they did a lot of talking about, you know, mental toughness and and the fact that it's gonna there's gonna be ups and downs. I think that with um, Corona, it presented some other problems that they didn't anticipate for sure. So I went to Pittsburgh for eight weeks. Um, after that, I went down to North Carolina to work with Evan Byers, um, a speed coach, for two weeks. 
And then my, I was supposed to come back up for my pro day in Albany, um, but that one got canceled. So my agent called me and he's like, hey, you want to come down to Florida? Um, we, we're going to have a pro day here um, in two weeks. So I ended up going down to Florida for two weeks. And the third night I was there, I get a call, hey, this is not going to work out. Two pro days, both canceled. Opportunities lost to COVID-19. So now I've traveled the whole East Coast and there's just no opportunity now. So I, I was stuck down there for two weeks. It wasn't as bad as it sounds. It's great weather and stuff. I got some really good workouts in just from being outside there. But then he called me like the, the second week I was there and was like, hey, there's something happening in Rochester. Would you be able to make it up there? So then I had to drive all the way back up to Rochester um, to do that. We are here today for the future. The future is tomorrow. We are here today because we have eight athletes that have an opportunity to make it to the NFL. This what was happening in Rochester was that a couple of local guys who had their own brief NFL experiences had heard all about the canceled pro days and decided to create an opportunity for the players who otherwise would not have one. Welcome to the 2020 Rochester Pro Day. On Saturday morning, April 4th, Gladney gathered with seven other athletes at the Arondacoit Sports Center, where they were put through a combine-style pro day administered by Bruce Johnson. The event came about by, you know, I was out, I was actually out in uh, L.A. Um, playing in the XFL, and then, you know, once the coronavirus stuff hit, I, you know, I was contacted by Bruce Johnson, who, you know, we've been great friends for a long time. He's trained together in high school, gone to seven-on-seven events. He contacted me and also got me in Jermaine Ponder, who's another NFL player on the phone. And we were just talking like, man, like these guys' pro days got canceled. Um, my brother was supposed to go to Rutgers and do his pro day. And, yeah, it was just like that, that was just, you know, the big be the big opportunity for him. And I'm like, man, like it got canceled? Like, oh, no, like, we got to make something happen here. So Quentin Gauze's brother Jojo played at IUP. Indiana University in Pennsylvania. A promising receiver from Division II, Jojo Gauze was invited to the CGS Small School Showcase. He was one of the players the coaches selected to stick around for the main showcase, where he wound up on the same team as Gladney. Quentin Gauze wasn't involved in the drills portion of the pro day. Instead, he was tucked away in a corner of the facility, broadcasting the event live on Facebook for his branding agency, Iron Visuals, providing a virtual opportunity for NFL scouts to watch an actual pro day, turned out to be the last chance for these eight players to generate a late-in-the-process buzz. Um, you know, we ended up, I think it's at 16,000 views that we've had total, and I just think that's amazing, you know. So it's definitely, you know, they definitely got seen. They definitely were able to get um, that exposure. And, uh, yeah, scouts. It's a new way of scouting, for sure, <laughs> virtually. It was a shot that Gladney could not pass up, but it was not without risk. First off, there was the health risk. It's not always possible to maintain safe social distancing in such an environment, especially during the bench press, when one player after another laid down on the bench to lift without anyone wiping it down in between reps. It's something that these guys do in the gym all the time without thinking twice, in this case, they had no choice. It was also a risk in terms of posting official pro day numbers under somewhat contrived conditions. Gladney, for instance, 
managed only nine reps on the bench. 33 wideouts lifted at the NFL Combine. Only one put up less than that. Three other guys registered nine, like Gladney. Jojo Gauze pumped out ten reps. Then there was the 40. For some positions, the 40-yard dash is a specious measurement, more flash than function. For wide receivers, though, it's considered fundamental. Gauze ran the 40 in 4.67 seconds, as timed by both handheld and laser devices. NFL teams like to see receivers run 4.6 or faster. Ernest Edwards, the all-time leading receiver from the University of Maine, ran a 4.41 on the Irondequoit turf. In both of his heats, Gladney ran 4.73. like a 4.73 from Will Gladney. 4.73. All that work, he now had to wonder, was the risk worth it? I mean, that's not the first risk, the risk I've taken in my life to, you know, try to be successful. I took a risk, you know, staying in Owego. At the end of the day, you have to do what you have to do what you have to do, and I just felt like that was the best um, opportunity that I had. And therein lies the rub. Numbers never meant anything before. Will that one number, or even one morning's worth of less than perfect numbers, come to define Will Gladney in the eyes of the NFL? Will the extenuating circumstances of an impromptu desperation pro day be taken into account? Or will cold, acontextual numbers written in marker on a whiteboard and shared out on a social media live feed, outweigh four years' worth of record-setting production? Now you understand why it's so hard for small school prospects to catch an eye. They get very few opportunities to do so, even fewer this year. And all their work, their potential, their story can be dismissed all too easily. Could it really be that 40 yards, 120 feet, run in 4.73 seconds might negate a lifelong journey that made it impossible for Will Gladney not to take his one shot? So obviously, um, you know, I, I did want better numbers. You know, I've spent the last three and a half years um, working on my diet, my training. Um, and then these last four months of just prepping sh- strictly just for that day. Um, and my numbers weren't great. I just know that, you know, sometimes you don't always get those great numbers and the teams that want to, you know, judge me based off of those numbers, so be it. But the teams that are, are willing to look at the full picture, um, they won't look back when they give me an opportunity. I know that for a fact. We had this conversation um, after the pro day was, the second pro day was canceled. And the way we processed that was, uh, I talked about uh, the Batman movie with Bane where he was talking about he was born in the dark, you know. Will's history is like this is this is where he's been. There's a, there's almost, you know, not, not that it, for lack of better words, there's comfort here. He's been here before. And there are a lot of other players that are in the same boat that, that, didn't, that didn't grow up like that, that, that haven't been here before. So if it, if anybody's going to get this, it's him. You know, this he'll push through and find a way, and he's always done that. And I think this is no different. The way I look at it is, I can't stop now. Not just for me, but for all those people that sacrificed everything to get me to this point. I just feel like it's not done until 
I do what I have to do. And that's for me, for me, that's becoming a, a great man and um, playing professional football one day. Will Gladney and his father, Mark Brainerd, are not sure they'll be watching the three days worth of draft coverage. Brainerd will be too anxious. Gladney said he might go work out instead of waiting for a call that may never come. He'll have his ringer on, though, loud. And if a call does come, he'll answer it on the first ring. But he's not going to sit around and wait. There's still work to be done. This episode of the Out of Left Field podcast was researched, written, edited, and hosted by me, David Siegerman. But as with everything in the world of sports, it's been a total team effort. Again, my thanks go out to my brother-in-law, George Hochbruckner, who provided the original music off his record, Celtic Afroacoustic Electric, available on iTunes. I want to thank Jessica Berenblatt of JB Art House for the cover art, Rachel Blackman of Tin Bear Consulting for getting our website off the ground. You can check us out now at outoflf.com. I want to thank Quentin Gauze and Iron Visuals for permission to use the audio from the Rochester Pro Day, Jeremy Menard and WICB Radio for the game calls, Ithaca College Sports Information Director Justin Lutz, Coach Swanstrom, Coach Petty, Mark Brainerd, and most of all, Will Gladney for giving me the opportunity to share his story. I first read about Will's story when I was looking into tickets to take my son to the Cortica Jug at MetLife Stadium. I've been looking for the right opportunity to tell it ever since. In this first season of Out of Left Field, we're exploring the many ways that the world of sports has been changed by the coronavirus and the stoppage of play it has caused. The next chapter of Will's football story may have been interrupted by the virus, but he's not done writing it yet. And with Will Gladney, as with any athlete scrutinized by scouts or reacted to by fans, it is the full story that really matters.